So we're going to continue on in Deuteronomy chapter 20. You can open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 20. I've said so many times over the years, my favorite time to teach, as much as I love our gatherings on Sundays, my favorite time to teach is actually Wednesday nights because that's the time where I don't really think about honing in on a particular focal point. It's just kind of going through the chapter. And I love it because it feels like you just show up and see what God has to say. And oftentimes he has many, many, many things to say as we go verse by verse, and we could be all over the page in terms of an overall theme, but the Lord is faithful to teach us, and I just love that. Well, this morning is kind of like that. We're gonna do the second half of Deuteronomy chapter 20, and uh, I'm not so worried about the application of it. I think God will bring that and, and will share that with each of us, and I think some of you may get a different application even than I've gotten. So we're gonna walk it out together. But before we do, when your associate pastor's son gives you a card addressed to the devil, you have to share it. <laughs> Judah came up to me this last week and handed me a card, and he said, this is not for you. I'm like, what are you talking about, Judah? This is not for me. And I looked, and it says, to Satan from Judah. <laughs> before I read it, so Jake is at the window of Eva's office. Cam is sitting in the chair. Judah hand, I'm in the doorway, and Judah hands me this card, and it was the best to see the parents begin to shake in fear, in absolute horror as to what did their son just hand the senior pastor. And after I read to Satan from Judah, they were cowering even more. I mean, I could see beads of sweat appearing on Jake's forehead. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment, man. To Satan from Judah, and on the inside it says, for I know when you will die, and there are many, many E's. I know when you will die, says Judah. And I read that and I said, hallelujah, he's right. He is right. <laughs> we do know, we know when Satan will die. Do you realize that? The Bible is explicit. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, Revelation 20, verse 10, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then after that, immediately, actually, after the great throne judgment, in Revelation 20, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. We know when Satan's gonna die. We know that the second death is for him and will affect him and will lock him down so that he will never again be able to do the things that he does, but right now he prowls the, the world like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Right now this is war. This is war. But I start with Judah's card because this is not a war that will last forever. This is not a war without end. Sometimes it can feel that way. Sometimes your life, my life, we can feel like, how long is it gonna be like this? How long am I gonna have to suffer through these things? How long must I wait, oh Lord? This is not a war that will last forever. With that, I might also add, your personal battle won't last forever either. 
The skirmish that you're in right now is temporary. The devil wants you to think that there's no end to it, but there is an end. There always is. And there ultimately is an end for him, a determined end. Our confidence is in Christ Jesus, amen? And he is the victor, he is the conqueror, he has already won, and yet even the, the battles we face right now, he will win. Give it to him, give him time. Trust him, it's not forever. It will end. Now, we start with warfare because that's where Moses is in Deuteronomy chapter 20, still dealing with Israel going to war and rules of engagement, which we looked at already the first half about those who are exempt from service, who don't even go to war for certain reasons, but then picking up in verse 10, Moses continues and says, when you approach a city and fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and all the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. You shall use the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you which are not of the cities of these nations nearby or literally these nations here. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. And then Moses says, when you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an ax against them, for you may eat from them and you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a man that you should be besieged or it should be besieged by you? Only the trees which are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. Father, again, we ask for application of these words of war to the battles that we fight until the end, in Jesus' name, amen. Elah devarim, these are the words of war. And they're words that, that remain a challenge, uh, even a disturbance, if you will, uh, for some readers of the Old Testament. We go through, we read these things, we think about them, and we go, wow, there's some... I, I, I don't really want to share some verses here with my non-believing friends. You shall not leave anything alive that is in it. I, I, I don't, can we just, let's go somewhere like John 3.16. That's an easier one. How do we deal with these things? And I, I want you to immediately notice something here. As we consider Moses' words of warfare, that Moses is distinguishing between war beyond the borders of Israel, verses 10 through 15, and war within the borders of Israel's inheritance, verses 16 through 18. There are wars they're gonna fight where they will go outside the inheritance of God and they will fight battles 
and they will besiege cities. But there's also war within, wars without, wars within, and only the cities within were subject to utter destruction. It's a very clear rule of engagement that the Lord gives through Moses here, only the cities within, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, verse 16. So no man, no woman, no child, no rover, he's right out, no animals, nothing breathing life. And again, I understand, it's tough stuff. Especially for those of a gentler nature, perhaps than mine. I'm like, yeah! And there are others who are like, why? God is calling for the complete annihilation of the seven nations. The nations in Canaan. And please understand, God calls for their complete annihilation because they are beyond repentance. Because they are so sin sick. They're all dying anyway. Man, woman, and child. Every child raised up in the land of Canaan would be raised up following the exact patterns, the horrific, abhorrent patterns that the Canaanites and all of the ites in the land were following. These seven nations were so sick, there was no saving them. How can you say that? They just need more time. They had 400 years. 400 years to turn from their ways. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. By the way, Moses leaves one out. I don't know if you noticed that. When he recounts the names of these nations in verse 17, he, he leaves one out. There's only six listed here. But there were seven specific nations in the land. So we might wonder, well, maybe the old preacher's just spacing it. He is 120 after all. So we can, we can cut him some slack. Hey, Moses' mind is sharp. I think what Moses is doing is counting on the people to know the word and to remember the teaching. Things that have been taught many times before. It's kind of like when I say Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. We could turn there, we can recount the nine fruits of the spirit we could do that, but, but you know them. I count on you to know them and to understand there aren't just three or four. There are nine, and you can look at those and think through them, and it's just pointing you to them. And that's what I think Moses is doing when he leaves one of the nations out. He says, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, you know, the, the, the ites, along with the megabytes and the troglodytes and the flashlights. You just take them all out. All those who are within the land, take them out. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter seven. Deuteronomy seven, verse one, because we have talked about this. This utter destruction, complete annihilation of these seven nations, and he does list all seven right here. Deuteronomy seven, verse one, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you. Note that, who's doing the clearing? God is, God is. Israel is the tool, but God is the deciding factor. God is the one who has decided in his righteous, perfect judgment their destruction. And he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. So they're all listed there. He says, when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Remember the word? Harim? 
harem, which means an absolute total ban. They are banned from life. And by the way, so sin sick are they that even the spoils of war within the promised land were banned. You don't get that stuff. You just wipe it out. It's, it's a complete, utter destruction. And you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Does Israel do it? No. No. There are several ites that remain in the land. Because Israel says, ah, you know, it's okay. It's not that big a deal. We can let them stay. Why does God call for a complete ban? Utterly destroy. Total annihilation is what the word means. Why? Two reasons. Two reasons. Get these down. Number one, protection against the dispersal of depravity. That is, he's protecting Israel against this depraved Situation that they were about to come into. He wants to protect them of themselves, of this depravity being dispersed in and among them, and it starts affecting them. Those who are there right now are dying in their sins. They are going to die in their sins. There is no turning back. But Israel coming into the land, God doesn't want them infected by this depravity. Again, back in chapter 20, verse 18, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. And I remind you, among those detestable things that they did for their gods was child sacrifice. And it was rampant, especially among firstborn children. Protection against the depravity dispersing throughout the land, but also, also punishment for Canaan's complete corruption. And we have to recognize that. This, this is not a people that are going to be saved. They don't want it. They have rejected it completely. They were corrupt to the core. How do you know? Because God knows the heart. He knows when a person is beyond repentance. And he knows when the point comes where it's better to put them out of their misery. That's what he's doing with the Canaanites and the rest in the land. We talked about this. Again, back in our study in Deuteronomy chapter seven, we called it words of utter destruction. And we went through and processed it. But here was the application, if, you, if you've forgotten. That we are to utterly destroy the sin within as Israel would destroy the nations within their inheritance, so the Lord would say to you and to me, utterly destroy the sin within. The sin that is in you, don't placate it. Don't tolerate it. Utterly destroy it. Wipe it out. Make no covenant with it. No deals. I'll let this remain. I just won't, I just won't go there except, you know, maybe late on a Friday night. I, I, just, won't, I, won't do, I just won't think about it until I'm doing it. Utterly destroy the sin within. No tolerance, no concessions, show it no favor. If there is something in you, something in me, that is a residual of an old sin, cut it out, destroy it. And we talked about the extermination of sin. It's not news for us. Think about this. This is consistent across history with God's fair, righteous, and just judgment. His judgment is always right. His judgment is good. And from the beginning to the end, God calls for the extermination of sin because sin destroys us, because sin kills us. 
Genesis chapter two, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Think about that. Think about all the various kinds of fruit, all of the vegetables, the fresh clear water running in the streams, everything the man and the woman could possibly need of the tastiest of fruit. You can eat all of it. Just don't eat from this tree. One tree, one rule, one law in the garden. Their law books were simple, one page with one law on it. That's all you have to do. You can do anything else. Run freely through the grass, eat of the fruit, enjoy each other, enjoy life. Just don't eat of this tree. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You understand what happens there. God's not just pronouncing a curse. He's stating a truth. When you sin, you will begin to die. And in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they began to die. That was the beginning of death, death entering the world, death entering their lives. Yes, by God's grace, they would, they would live on many, many more years, but death was a thing. And from that day forward, their bodies began to corrupt. Because that's what sin does. Listen, John Corson puts it this way. I love this. He says, sin is not bad because it's forbidden by God. Sin is forbidden by God because it's bad. That's the point. God says this will kill you, so exterminate it, wipe it out. And we see from Genesis 2, 16, in the garden where God says, if you eat this, you're gonna die, all the way to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, which we just read, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. Death from one end to the other, why? For sin. Exterminate the sin within the land, the sin within the life. And you know this, more than four centuries before Moses preached the punishment of crooked Canaan, all the way back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham, I'll I'll just read this to you. In the fourth generation, they, that is Abram's people, will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What does that mean? means it's not filled up. means there's still room for repentance. There's still a chance that some could be saved. And we don't know, perhaps some were. Over 400 years, perhaps there were some who turned away from that sick sinfulness and turned to the Lord. We don't know because the Bible deals specifically with the history of Israel. But he says, their sin is not yet complete. I'm giving them time. I'm giving them time. And then, The Lord says to Abram in verse 18, on that day he made a covenant saying, to your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite and the Parasite and the Rephaim, and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. That's 10 nations listed, but they are also summed up in the seven that are in the land when Moses and the children of of Israel come into it. All these people groups make up the seven. But again, and we're kind of reviewing what we talked about in Deuteronomy 7, God knows the heart. And the sad truth of Canaan is that these nations were as good as dead. James 1.15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's the deal. That's why sin is forbidden by the Lord, because sin will kill you, will kill me, if it's not cleared out of the land. 
So the utter destruction of the Canaanite nations was, as I already said, to put them out of their misery, to stop the sin and to protect Israel from the same ruinous death. So do that with your sin, the sin that's within, put it out of your misery. But what about the world beyond my borders? And see, here's where we make a distinction. What about outside of me? My focus is to put my sin to death, but outside there are other nations, there are other battles. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And again, reviewing, we talked about last week, shalom, that is our mandate. That is our message, that we offer the world terms of peace. Sometimes we flip that around. I want peace for me. So I'm gonna make peace with my sin by just doing it occasionally. But when it comes to the rest of the world, I'm not making peace with that, those sinful, sick people. No, I'm judging that. And the Lord would say, wait, wait, wait. No, you, you judge your own sin. When it comes to the outside world, the first thing you offer is peace. Peace, the gospel of peace, shalom, is again that word in Hebrew, complete wellness of being. What, what the Jewish people think of, not just a peaceful afternoon or a quiet stream, but it's wholeness. It's, it's being absolutely at peace. It's the opposite of utter destruction. It's completeness and fullness and wholeness in the Lord. That again is our singular message to the world beyond our borders to the world outside, perhaps even the fellowship of the church. The message is the message of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel of peace. And having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Pastor Rick's just gonna slide back just a little bit to get out of the sun. Do you have that peace? Follower of Jesus, and perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus this morning. I'm not 100% sure who is and who isn't. I think most of you are. Do you have that peace? Do you have peace with God through Jesus Christ? Let's be sure. Because it was at the end of John's gospel that John wrote, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, John chapter 20. He would go on later to say, all the libraries in the world couldn't hold the number of books that could be written about what he did. But John said, he said, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, which is life right now and on into eternity. So follower of Jesus, do you have that peace? You have been given that peace in Jesus. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. Peace to live in wholeness of being, in completeness with Jesus. John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Life then, eternal life, is part of the peace now in this life that completeness of being. That's the path that we're on. Boy, this window's nailing me this morning. 
I think it's going to go a little more, so we'll just move as I need to. (laughs) So that's the promise. That's the one that we have, and it's the one that we bring. It's the gospel of peace. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. Have you called on his name? I got one amen. Thank you. Have you called on his name? Amen. Let's try just one more time because I'm not, I'm not being clear enough, apparently. Have you called on his name? Amen. Then you have peace. That is what we have to give. And that is what we have to offer. And if you've called on his name, Romans 10, 14, how will they then call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher. And he's not talking about me. He's talking about all of us. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. My son Christopher bought some white Nikes. This is all the thing now. White Nikes. Pure white, the whole shoe. I remember it wasn't long ago when white sneakers were like lame. Y'all, y'all remember that? Someone walk in with white sneakers, you can go, dude, catch up. That is so passe. Well, now it's back. And everyone's buying the white sneakers, but they're, just not, they're not just buying white sneakers. They're buying them, and they're, they're designing them. You should see these shoes. Look, when Christopher comes this afternoon, or, or he'll be here second service, look at the shoes, because they got more color, colors on them than I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he just sat down there, and, he, you know, and, and Cheryl helped him with it. He's got these really cool, they're no longer white Nikes. The swooshes are different colors and, the, and the, all of the borders are different. And both sho- the shoes don't even match each other. They're just colors all over the place. I look at that and, and, and I think, man, that's lame. I don't understand these things, the, the fashions that come in and out. But Christopher would tell you, ah, dad, nah, I got beautiful feet. Beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news of good things, remember this, for all the pain and conflict and persecution that you and I may yet face in the world, all the battles we still have to fight, our message remains the same, the gospel of peace. And so we bring peace to the world. So put those two things together. As with Israel, we are to utterly destroy the sin within, that is, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, any breathing sin in your life and my life, wipe it out, get rid of it, utterly destroy the sin within, but offer peace to the sinful world without. And that's how we are to live. Psalm 2, verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Truly the wrath of God is coming on an unrighteous, sin-sick, Christ-rejecting world. However, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And that is peace. Refuge in Jesus, that is peace by the gospel of peace that we have been given. And I think I can move all the way back forward again because it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So continuing on, verse 11. Verse 11. 
after approaching the city, offering peace. <laughs> I'm just, tell you what, we're just gonna stand and I'll move as I need to move. horrible because I like the sun. All right, stay with me. Verse 11. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. This is typical warfare, especially in ancient times. You go in and you'd fight and you'd besiege a city and you would conquer it and the conquering nation became overlords of the conquered nation. The conquered nation became subservient to the conquering nation. And oftentimes the conquering nation would allow the conquered nation to remain. You can still live there. You can still have your towns and your cities and whatever, but now you serve us. And now you offer us tribute. In fact, that phrase forced labor, note this in verse 11, can also be translated tribute. It's used both ways. So it's either service to the nation that's conquered you, slavery to that nation, forced labor as the NASB translates, or it's paying tribute. And I think that's probably the context of uh, of this statement that Israel is to offer terms of peace. Terms of peace. And if they reject the terms of peace, then you conquer them and you strike them and they will then owe you no, no, I'm sorry, before you conquer them, if, if they agree to peace, they agree to your terms of peace, they agree to pay tribute to avoid war. And then Israel can go back to their, nation, to their cities and, and have peace, and the conquered nation, or the nation that decided not to fight, they get peace as well, but they would pay tribute then to Israel. This is the problem that some claim to have with Christianity. Now think about this application you go to someone and you offer them the gospel of peace and they say, okay, uh, what do I have to do to make peace? Well, you become a servant of God. Ah, there's my problem. See, I I don't mind making peace if I can make peace and continue to live my way. I I don't mind, uh, you know, agreeing to a covenant of peace as long as I can do what I wanna do. Well, the problem is you can't. When your heart has been conquered by the spirit of the Lord, when, when you've been overtaken by the grace and the love of God, you now owe him everything. You owe him your life. You owe him tribute. We call it worship. You owe him, I will even say forced labor, we call it service. And again, if you follow Jesus, you know this, it's a good thing. Oh man, I love to pay tribute to the Lord. Because I find that every time I pay tribute to the Lord in worship, my heart is encouraged. I'm lifted up. It's wonderful. Yes, I want to pay tribute. Oh, I, I love to serve the Lord. There's something about serving in a church fellowship or, or out in the world when you know you're doing it for Jesus that really builds you up. And it's encouraging. But again, the non-believing world will say, well, wait, but I go from ruler of my life to now paying tribute. Servant of God? I go from being king of me to tributary of him. And people have a problem with that. The rebellious heart does. But the thing is, none of us make very good kings, even of ourselves. I'm ruling myself, I'm doing okay. Not so much. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that. Besides the fact, when the prodigal comes to his senses in the pig pen and realizes that even his father's servants 
are better off than he is. He, he heads home, and as he comes home, what happens? Father runs to him. Before he can even get out a word of apology, the father is calling for robe and ring and new sandals and saying, let's, let's kill the fatted calf because my son was dead. And sin is the implication. Dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. So what better response is there to the peace of salvation than tribute, honor, and even servitude? Because the servants of our Father's house are better off than anyone outside the Father's house. And more than that, while we would come to the Lord and bow in tribute and worship him, we recognize that, oh, just to be a servant of God, that's all I want. That's why every apostle signs their letters, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Because to be a bondservant of Jesus is to live in the house. And you know this, that every bondservant who calls himself, herself a bondservant, God looks at and calls my sons and daughters. That's almost too much to take. Son? Now I'll pay tribute. Daughter? I'll be a bondservant. But that's what happens when you give your life to Jesus. You realize that the peace is worth all the tribute that you have and all the service that you have to give. But what happens when the peace is completely rejected? For Israel, verse 12 tells us, if it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you. Note that. Not only now does, do they not make peace with Israel, but they turn around and they make war. So there's been a decision made here by this nation, by this city to turn back and fight against, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself. You shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you, and thus you shall do to all the cities that are, that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Okay, so if the, if the city becomes antagonistic and is opposed to you and wants to fight against you, then what do you do? You besiege it. If they want to fight, Israel, you fight. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 52, all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So when peace was rejected, Israel became the divine tool of destruction. But again, not of everything. If we're talking about nations outside of their inheritance, outside of the land, the men were killed. Well, the men were fighting. The men were the, the picture of rebellion. So you take them out, but you don't kill the women and you don't kill the children and you don't kill off all the livestock and you don't destroy everything. You bring that in, it shall become as treasure, as spoils of war for you. Now understand what that means. People might say, well, that's, that's terrible. The women and children become slaves. No, not in Israel. They, be, they, they become brought into Israel. You know what that means? That means they start to enjoy the promises of inheritance of the land of being with the people, of the blessings of God that are on Israel, they get to enjoy as well. Just kill the men, because they're the ones fighting 
but not the rest. You can enjoy the rest. Do not mistreat them, but you care for them. Think about all the things that God said about the foreigners in the land throughout the law. How were the Israelites supposed to treat the foreigners in the land? Treat them well. Treat them as one of your own. And so they would bring these spoils. These women and these children would be raised up with all the blessings of Israel. But but go back to verse 12 and note this. If it does not make peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. So this is the standard of warfare. It's to besiege. I like this, this common tactic, especially back in the day because most of the cities were built up on hills. Nowadays, we call them tells. They're all over Israel, Tel Sheva. You know, there's, there's Tel Dan. And a tell is a raised place because the cities typically were built on hills. And what the archaeologists have discovered is if you find a hill, especially in Israel, there's a good chance that's got some information there for you. And they start to dig around it and dig in it and they begin to find city walls and city encampments and they realize, okay, this was a city. But the cities were built, Jericho, built up on a hill. So you have to go up to fight against it to get into it. So the best way to fight is besiege it. You surround it, you cut off the supply lines. Food can't get in, water can't get in, people can't get in and out, and you you basically lock down the people. We all know how that feels a little bit, (laughs) being locked down, I mean. It's like, can I go out of my house? Besiege them. The word besiege in the Hebrew is sarta. And Sarta literally translates to surround, as in military strategy, to defeat a city or nation by waiting them out. Now, I like this. Think about this with me. Wait them out. Besiege them. This is God's strategy for warfare. Go against the city outside and wait them out. And you can do the same thing. What do you mean? The non-believer. You've taken the gospel of peace to them. They've rejected it. They don't want to hear it. They're tired of you talking about Jesus. Wait them out. Besiege them. Just stay right there. You know what besiege can also translate? I love this. To bind, to confine, or to cramp. If someone refuses the gospel of peace for the sake of their salvation, let me just encourage you with this idea, cramp their style. This, this is good Bible. This is good gospel. Cramp their style. Huh? Don't make it easy for them to be in rejection of the gospel. Stick around. Keep talking about Jesus. Annoy them with the Bible. Will you stop bringing up Jesus? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, are we going to eat? Yeah, let's eat. Okay, let's pray together. Lord Jesus. Cramp their style. Besiege them. See, we give up too easily. Oh, oh no, they're upset with me. I can't go into another family gathering and talk about Jesus. Sure you can. They get to talk against Jesus. Cramp their style. Make a dying life unacceptable to them. Live in the fruit of the Spirit in such a way, as Jesus said, that they may see your good works and eventually glorify your Father who's in heaven. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Be a little annoying. That's okay. Do it with grace, speak the truth in love, but cramp their style. Don't be a jerk, but be a follower of Jesus and bring the message of peace. It is still a peaceful message. Don't don't give up, besiege them. And by the way, don't live like some closet Christian. 
Because that, we slide into that way too quickly. If it's the slightest bit difficult, we give up. Listen, besieging a city could take years in ancient times. Are you willing to take years for a son or a daughter? Years for a brother or a sister? Years for a friend? Ah, oh, but I've been bringing the gospel to them. I've been talking to them for 20 years now. Do it another 20. Don't stop. Don't give up. Keep going. But they've said they will not talk to me anymore if I use the name Jesus around them. So you pray fervently and use the name of Jesus around them. You can do it with a wink. You, you can say, oh man, we were talking about Jesus the other day. I know, I know, I know. You don't like to hear about Jesus, but I, I, and I'm sorry I brought up the name Jesus again, but Jesus is the one I think about a lot. So, But I'll try not to say Jesus around you too much, okay? <laughs> If there's just too much Jesus in our conversation, I'll try to back off of saying Jesus when you're around. Cramp their style. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. How in the world are they gonna find Jesus if you don't live as the light? If I don't live as the light? You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket? But on, no, you put it on the lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And listen to what Jesus says. Listen to this, this is important. Then he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now we take that verse oftentimes by itself. Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And we read that verse, we talk about that verse, and it's an interesting verse. The context of that verse is Jesus saying, let your light shine. Meaning what? Meaning let your light shine by living the law and the prophets because they are not abolished. How do I ignite? How do I let my light shine? By this word. Because it is still relevant and it does not disappear. And Jesus himself fulfills the whole thing so the whole thing's about him. That's how we let our light shine. We live by God's righteous standards that, them, that themselves declare Jesus. So again, if it makes those around you uncomfortable to sin, good, good. Cramp their style. I'll give you one more example. How many times have I been aware of Christians who will go into a situation with, with coworkers at work or whatever, and you'll go to a party, and, and you'll have a glass of wine or you'll have a beer just because you don't want to make them uncomfortable? Make them uncomfortable. Let them see the difference in you. And that, that's a lame example, but it's just one. You know what I mean? When you're around other people and you begin to dial back your faith. Oh, when we're with other Christians, when we're standing in the foyer, we're gonna talk about Jesus all morning. You know, we'll pray together. Let me lay hands on you and pray right now. We'll do that. Try doing that at work. Someone's talking about the mess at home. Hey, can I pray for you? Uh, here, now? Yeah, yeah, can I pray for you? Okay, and then lay hands on them, freak them out. Cramp their style. Cramp their style. Speak the truth in love. Live the gospel with integrity and openness. Continue to pray for friends and family and wait them out. Because I'll tell you one thing I've seen over years of ministry is people coming back to the Lord later in life. This has been a, a stunning thing, an aha for me. Because I was the youth pastor who heard the statistic that Jake has heard 
that if you don't get them by the time they're age 18, you're probably not gonna get them. Well, that's interesting to me because I see people coming to the Lord all the time who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 80s, 90s. There are people who have come to faith in the Lord whose parents prayed for them and talked to them and waited for them, but the parents died and then the person came to the Lord and mom and dad never even saw it. So don't assume you're even gonna see it. You may not until we're all with Jesus. But as long as you have breath, wait them out. Cramp their style. Bring the gospel of peace. Don't let the non-believer, by the way, cramp your Christian life. Don't you be besieged by the dying sinful world around us. Don't cave in, don't compromise just because you're tired of the onslaught of corruption, just because it's easier to go their way. Don't do it. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. It's gonna be difficult. Just expect that. Remember the word I said to you, Jesus says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there is something about the spoken word that is powerful, that is potent, especially if it's the word of Christ. Keep bringing it. James 4 verse 4 says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What am I supposed to be? I'm supposed to be a friend of God in this world. Cramping their style. I know I'm sitting on this one for a while, but I just, I just love the idea of making non-believers uncomfortable with my faith. That's a good thing. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, don't love the things in the world or, or the, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father's not in him. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, that's not from the Father, that's from the world. And the world is passing away. The war has an end. There is an end point to the history of this earth. The world is passing away and its lusts. The one who does the will of God lives forever. So take the fight to the world. Besiege the world. Don't be besieged by culture. Assault it with peace. You're the salt of the world, so assault the world. <laughs> now, there's one more thing here that I find curious. It's wholly practical for Israel, and it's practically intriguing for you and for me. Verse 19 says, when you besiege a city a long time to make war against it in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an ax against them, for you may eat from them and you shall not cut them down. God is opposed to de deforestation. <laughs> and he says, for the tree of the field, is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you? Only the trees which you know are not fruit trees, you should destroy and cut down so that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war with you until it falls. So you can use the wood of non-fruit trees. You can cut them down, you can make siege works, ladders, battering rams, whatever you need for the warfare, that's fine. But God is obviously opposed to senselessly raising the forests. And this was a common practice also in ancient 
warfare. Just to wipe, you come into an enemy territory, wipe out everything. Burn it down, take it down. After 135 AD, some of you know this history, about after the, the Bar Kokhba revolt um, that was led against Rome by the remnant of Jews that were still in the land, in the land of Israel. After that revolt, the Roman emperor Hadrian, he put it down, and after putting it down, renamed the land, you remember this, Palestine. It's the first time it was called Palestine. By the way, it bugs the snot out of me. When I read a commentary that refers to the land of Israel as Palestine pre-135 AD. That's not true. It was not called Palestine in ancient times, ever. It became Palestine when the Roman emperor Hadrian called it that in 135. And then it held on to that name from 135 to 1948. It was called Palestine. And there were Palestinian Jews and there were Palestinian Arabs. And that's, that's the truth of, of history. So he renamed it Palestine and he renamed uh, Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina as a nod to himself, the emperor Hadrian. But then he did something else. He salted all the land, all around Jerusalem. He fried it so that no vegetation could grow, no fruit trees could grow. Later on, the Ottoman Turks, when they took over the land, they added something to the salting of the land. They added a tree tax. Now, I don't know about you, but if Biden told me I had to start paying a tree tax for every tree that was on my property, you'd find my property cleared pretty fast. <laughs> and that happened in the land of Israel no wonder the land became as God will prophesy even in this, in this sermon of Moses. We'll get there later. God will prophesy the land will become desolate. Desolate, completely desolate. The fruit trees wiped out. The forests of Israel completely gone. It's been reforested since 1948 in marvelous ways. It's, it's even changing the atmosphere around Israel because of the reforestation of the trees because you take away the trees, it changes the atmosphere. People who don't go on our Israel trip, some people don't go because they go, why would I wanna go to the desert? It's not the desert. It's beautiful. Don't deny yourself the opportunity. We're going in March 14th through 28th and if you'd like to go, please talk to Pastor Rick. So this was a practice to wipe out all of the trees, take them down. Through Moses, the Lord commands his people, don't cut off a common food source while you're in fighting mode. Do you get the application here? In a long campaign or a siege, eat the fruit, don't defeat the fruit. You're gonna need the fruit to continue the siege works. Now, now non-fruit trees could be used as siege works, battering rams, as I said, against the enemy city. If it didn't bear fruit, that's fine. Cut it down, you can use that. But you're gonna need the fruits and the vegetables that are around the city. And this intrigues me practically. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. While you're turning there in Romans chapter seven, Paul writes, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. That is to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. 
For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law or ignited by the law or revealed by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So we were like dead fruit trees before Jesus came and brought the gospel of peace. And all of a sudden, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The fruit begins to appear. We talked about last week and often the fruit of the Spirit and we are supposed to be fruitful in battle. Don't destroy the fruit. Matthew chapter seven, verse 15, listen to Jesus. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. The good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them, Jesus says, by their fruits. And then he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are those who are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do good religion in your name, Lord? You know, there are trees that grow up in the church. Jesus called them tares among the wheat and leaven in the dough and even birds in the branches. Jesus described that as the church grows up, that within, there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, those who are in your worship services, those who stand up and say, oh, but, but we did all these great things in the name of Jesus. And at the end, Jesus will go, yeah, no, we never talked. Had no relationship. And the fruit that you bore was fruit of the flesh. It was not the fruit of the spirit. And he'll say, depart from me. Here, Jesus tells you and he tells me, you will know them by their fruits. And I need you to listen closely on this. There are those who are looking for heresy under every tree. And I've done that at times. You know, in this warfare, there are trees that bear bad fruit. And we need to be on the alert and aware of that fact that there are trees, there are churches there are movements that even claim the name of Christian. Your Mormon friends will knock on the door and claim to be Christians. The thing is, they serve a different Jesus. You'll know them by their fruits. By their fruits, this is the key. But in this warfare, as we consider their fruits, that's the key for us, that there are some trees in the larger orchard of God that look different than ours. There are some churches that don't do things the way we do them here at the bridge. I know, it's shocking. 
There are churches and there are worship services that are far more lively than we are. And some of you say, why can't we be more like that? And then there are other churches that are far more quiet and subdued than we are. Standing up is an imposition in some places. And there may be one or two of you who would say, why can't we do it like that? There are different approaches. There are different types of fruit Different things being done in different churches, but it's still, all, it's still all the orchard of God. What I'm saying is, if they're bearing fruit for Jesus, let it alone. Don't worry about it. Don't freak out. Yeah, but, but, but they did this weird thing. Yeah, but are people getting saved in the name of Jesus? Then leave it alone. If they're bearing spiritual fruit, if they're bearing Jesus' fruit, if it bears good fruit, don't cut it down. Don't automatically say, we'll have nothing to do with them because they're different than we are. Because they approach things differently. They're more excited, they're less excited. They, they just, they're weird. <laughs> are they bearing fruit for Jesus? If they're bearing fruit for Jesus, don't cut them down. We may find that we need these fruitful trees more as the end draws near. Now again, if it's bad fruit, you cut it down. If it's bad fruit, you don't eat of it. In fact, any cultish group that comes along and diminishes Jesus or denies the word of God or bears bad negative fruit in this world, don't eat that stuff. It's interesting, John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.10, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So if it's bearing bad fruit, don't eat of it, that's already gone. That one's already determined for judgment. However, if it's another church or Christian group who maybe has a different looking fruit party than ours on a Sunday morning, <laughs> something that I'm not comfortable with, listen, this is another great story. Mark chapter nine, verse 38, John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. <laughs> yeah. You know, he was over there, said in Jesus' name be cast out and the demon was cast out and we had to shut that down. What an example. Jesus says, do not hinder him. There is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. And then he, he, he defines that a little more. He says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So what are we saying? Be discerning, be wise, be thoughtful, inspect the fruit. But remember that there are fruit trees bearing fruit in the name of Jesus that look different than we do. Praise the Lord. And keep doing what we're doing as long as we're bearing fruit. And if some movement, some group, some organization is bearing bad fruit, that's what you cut off. But in all of this, remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood which we can so easily make it about that. It's against the rulers and the powers and the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. Note there are fruitful fellowships in the orchard of Christ that are actually fighting the same battles we are. And if it's in the name of Jesus, amen. Bottom line, don't fight these battles 
fruitlessly. In John chapter 15, verse four, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Okay, one, one quick final thing I wanna tell you. When I was in Ghana, every day, man, was about Jesus. Every day. I prayed more on a daily basis over that month in Africa than I ever pray here at home. I realized this this last week. I'm reading Abide in Me, and I, and I, and I went back, and <laughs> it's ironic because being in Africa, there were aspects of it that were very stressful. And it seemed like it was gonna last forever because we didn't have any end date. We didn't know when everything would be accomplished to finish the adoption process and get Chris home. We didn't know. So while we were there, it was like, we could be here another week or we could be here another three. We didn't know. But every single day, and I'm just telling you honestly, I woke up in the morning praying. First moment I saw Christopher, I started praying. Through the day, we'd sit there at, at mealtimes, we were praying. In the afternoons, we opened up the Bible together and we were praying. Cheryl and I were praying in the evenings together. It was just this constant thing. It was wonderful. And I realized this week, wow. The, the difference between the fruitful prayer when I was in the midst of battle and, and the prayer life back here at home when, when it's relatively easy and settled back in. Abide in me, Jesus says. Abide in me. See, the thing is, if I'm abiding in him, I'm gonna be cramping the style of the world. And if I'm abiding in him, I'm gonna be bringing the gospel of peace to the world. And if I'm abiding in him, I'm gonna be bearing fruit. I can't help it, it's the fruit of the spirit. And it's gonna be all over me because I'm abiding in him and he produces it. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I was praying, Lord, don't send me back to Africa but help me abide. Help me abide right here, right now, whether I'm in battle or whether I'm at ease. Help me, Lord, to be with you and in you and talking to you all through the day. If anyone does not abide in me, Jesus says, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How do we do it? We abide, we abide. Maybe you're not a great fighter, abide. Maybe it's all you can do just to be rooted in God's grace, abide. Maybe you love com combat, you like the skirmishes. You look forward to getting into it when the battles abide. <laughs> and notice the very last three words of Deuteronomy 20, verse 20. Construct siege works against the city and that is making war with you, three words, until it falls. Until, not if, not in case it falls, not perchance, maybe, he says, until it falls. So the chapter concludes with the certainty of victory. 
until it falls, you stand. Until it falls, you lay siege to the city. Until it falls, you bring the gospel of peace. Judah was right. He was right. We know when Satan and sin will finally be put down, when all battles will finally cease, when the war will end, and so we are to hold fast, bring the gospel of peace, and lay siege to this world until it falls. Knowing that there is one fruit-bearing tree, just one, above all others, that stands as the certain symbol of our victory, it is Calvary's tree, the cross. That is the tree. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So both our fruitfulness and our final victory depend on what happened at that tree, at Calvary. So whether it's complete annihilation of the sin within or it's going to battle without. We look to Jesus, we abide in Jesus through whom we bear fruit for the coming kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us and pray, Lord, that you will manage this warfare and manage our fights and lead us in our battles. We ask, Jesus, that you will help us to to trust in you and to look to you, truly, Lord Jesus, to abide Lord, we need to abide more than anything else in our lives. I think if there was a one-word application for the fruit-bearing that we've talked about this morning, that's it. Oh, Lord, help us to abide in you. We pray in Jesus' name.